It's the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. From time to time, you'll hear people on this podcast talking about whole person care. It happens pretty often. In fact, in the editorial background, it's an organizing idea that helps the producers shape our content from episode to episode. The shorthand that we sometimes use is, we are whole persons caring for whole persons. And we believe that's true, except when it comes to our teeth. Because there's this curious divide in healthcare. There are clinicians who deal with what goes on in our mouths, and there are other clinicians who deal with all the other parts, in spite of the fact that what goes on in our mouths has repercussions elsewhere in our bodies. The divide is deep. Dentists are trained separately from physicians. They're licensed differently. They very often tend to practice in separate physical locations. Your dental records are separate from your other medical records, and medical insurance won't automatically cover dental work. You couldn't design a more distinct system of parallel but uncoordinated care. But why? Well, dentistry has its roots in barbering, really the work of the barber surgeons in medieval Europe. The barber was a one-stop shop for getting a little taken off the side and getting a tooth pulled or a limb amputated. Or maybe you just needed a little bloodletting to perk yourself up for the weekend. The barber surgeon was your guy. The physicians of the day were busy with pseudoscience and poring over dusty Greek texts. Remember, before the germ theory emerged centuries later, medicine was basically one big crapshoot with unknown outcomes. And the work of the barber surgeon at least was definitive. Anyone who's felt the relief of a pulled tooth knows what I'm talking about. The legacy of these historic beginnings of dentistry persisted into the 19th century and in all the places European hegemony reached. And with it came a fair amount of distrust between the aloof physicians and their vapors and humors and the roll-up-your-sleeve dentists with their razors and saws. It's crazy to think that those medieval beginnings explain why your health insurance doesn't cover routine dental care. It's absolutely crazy. On today's program, the bumpy landscape that has emerged between dentistry and medicine. What are the consequences of having dental care segregated from general health care? And is integrating oral health with medical care possible given the long-standing separation? Interestingly, the pandemic has added pressure for some change. We'll talk about that and the crowd of stakeholders around a very big table and whether maybe, just maybe, we have arrived at a time for change. In 2007, Diamante Driver died of a toothache. He was 12 years old, came home from school and told his mom his tooth hurt. Alice Driver looked for a dentist who would see her son there in Maryland. The boy was covered by Medicaid, the state-sponsored insurance for low-income people, 
but not all dentists accept Medicaid payments. Because he was poor, this was the insurance that was available to him, and it made access next to impossible. That's Lori Norris, an attorney in Baltimore who's been advocating for oral health care reform for a long time. Diamante's toothache worsened. The infection spread from his tooth to his brain, and despite two brain surgeries, Diamante died. An $80 extraction would have prevented the tragedy. If only Diamante got to a dentist. If only his family was able to navigate the confusing landscape of dental care. Jane Barrow is Associate Dean for Global and Community Health at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. She's also the Executive Director of the school's initiative to integrate oral health and medicine. And also with us today is Dr. Sheenam Tiku, who teaches oral health policy and epidemiology at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. The two are principal authors of a paper that looks at oral health stakeholders and whether it's time for alignment and action. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. The story of Diamante Driver is so tragic, and I'm afraid so instructive. He essentially died um, of something which was very preventable. It was dental caries, one of the most prevalent diseases in the world, and highly preventable at that, essentially because he fell through the cracks in the health system. The Children's Health Insurance Plan, or SHIP, was brought on by the Clinton administration, I think, around 1994. But as as most things happen in in the health policy realm, oral health was not mandated into into CHIP. So oral health was was a separate. It wasn't a requirement uh, for for CHIP. And what this really showed was um, oral health needed to be included in CHIP. And what Diamante Driver's death, unfortunately, the unfortunate incident that it was actually caused oral health to be mandated into CHIP, and then it was. But this is just an example kind of of the divide, as, as we are talking about right now, between dental and medical as something as important as healthcare for children didn't include dental care. And it took a death of a boy to really have that happen. It was a tragic situation. The family called many, many um, providers. They went to the emergency room. Um, emergency rooms often are not equipped to handle dental emergencies other than to um, provide um, pain relief and antibiotics and, and telephone numbers for, for dentists. Um, so. We are fortunate that we now have the mandate that oral health care is provided through the CHIP program, and we've seen uh, dramatic increases in access for uh, children up through age 21 um, going to the dentist on a regular basis thanks to the mandate in CHIP. But that mandate disappears when someone becomes an adult, right? Correct. And even in Medicaid and in Medicare, the coverage that an adult might have for dental care varies widely from state to state, um, and also from what Part C coverage that they might have. Do I have that right? Yes, exactly. So it's, it's very complicated, as you know. And it also depends on whether your state has an expanded uh, Medicaid program or not. So if your state is one of the 
I think it's 37 states now that has expanded the Medicaid now, the Medicaid benefit in general, then dental benefit may also be expanded. But that, again, does not hold true for all states. So like I said, it's a very complicated landscape. And, and it, like you said, sorry. I don't want to interrupt you, but it's, it's, it's kind of crazy how, uh, what's the word, how varied the coverage is or how disorganized the coverage is, depending on what your point of view is, I suppose. It is. And what, what the most interesting thing is that it doesn't mean that if you have dental coverage today, it will be the same five years from now. So, for example, um, during the recession in 2009, a lot of states stopped um, dental from their uh, package of services in their Medicaid program. So it's, it's always very um, kind of quick to be chopped. It's like easy to be on the chopping block when, you know, you have a budget deficit in your state, when there are other problems. This is seen as a line item in a budget more easily than it's seen as a part of comprehensive health care. Absolutely. It almost seems more like a commodity in, in many ways. As, as you may have seen, uh, the American Dental Association and, and the World Health Organization came out uh, last summer in August of 2020 with statements about oral health being essential to overall health and wellness. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's uh, rather surprising that it took us that long to come out with statements that oral health is essential. But I think that helps us understand partly why there is this incredible segregation between dental care and medical care. It has not been viewed as essential. And as Sheenam just described, this incredibly complicated landscape that, that gives evidence to that perspective. Well, we're going to talk about the ADA's complicated history on this, which makes the essential health service designation curiouser and curiouser, as they say. But I want to ask you about the history of this divide, because there's no doubt about it. There is a clear division between oral health and other health care. And for most of us, we have no idea why that divide exists. So I, I think it really goes back. We recently had our 150th uh, anniversary here at Harvard School of Dental Medicine, um, where, and we talk about being the first um, university-affiliated dental school with a medical school, or as part of a medical school. University of Maryland actually predates us by, dental school predates us by a couple of years. But the, the education of physicians and dentists has, has always been separate in the United States and elsewhere around the world. And because of that separation in training, there have been separation in licensure, um, separate scope of practice laws, um, separate residency and training, uh, and as a result, then uh, separate sites of practice and ultimately separate insurance. And uh, I think the dental profession has been happy to have a siloed uh, relationship with the medical profession. The dentist did not want to be part of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. Um, I don't think that the American Medical Association was enthusiastic initially either, but I think at this juncture, if you asked most physicians or hospitals about removing Medicare and Medicaid, I don't think they would be enthusiastic about losing it now. Right. Um, but the dentists were successful 
in remaining outside of Medicare and Medicaid. Because they continue to be separate, they stayed out of managed care and have stayed out of a lot of the um, accountable care organization pilots that we see as a result. And I think because the training has always been different, um, there are some, some social barriers as well. Um, for physicians, they get about two hours, maybe four hours of instruction in oral health on average in medical school. Um, so if you don't learn about this while you're in medical school, you might not think it's important and you might not have a language to use in communicating with oral health providers if your patients come to you and have oral health concerns. Conversely, um, many dental schools do not provide a lot of information to their trainees on how to take a health history, how does oral health relate to overall health and wellness um, in the way one might hope um, in order to create truly integrated care teams uh, that would provide comprehensive medical and dental care to patients. Hmm. And this exists, this divide, in spite of the fact that medical providers will acknowledge the link between poor dental hygiene and disease processes elsewhere in the body. And I'm thinking of valve disease of the heart as a prime example, but there are others, aren't there? Yes, definitely. And there is link between poor oral health and poor overall health. You know, there's link between periodontal disease and, and diabetes. Now there is kind of, we've been looking at link between periodontal disease and poor cognitive uh, health. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of emerging evidence around how oral health and overall health are, are, are intimately and intricately related to each other. But to your point about um, physicians will acknowledge that there is this, and yes, but I think it also goes down to what we talked about, the culture that developed and, and has been perpetuated the past you know 150 odd years of separate professions. And, and um, one of our, um, our, our, our previous deans at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine, um, Dr. Donoff, would joke that when I would be on my ENT rotation, because he, was a, he trained as an oral surgeon, I would be asked to look, open the mouth and look directly into the throat. Um, and, and, and I would never look at the teeth in those rotations. And, that was, and that's, that's the reality, is that there's a culture that developed um, to kind of completely not look at the teeth in, in, on the medical side and to consider that as a completely, at, at you, as you would say, outside of you know, the realm of, of, of medicine. I uh, have lived with coronary artery disease for 25 years, and I've never had a cardiologist look at my mouth, ever. Yeah, and, and that's something that, that we have also looked at. I mean, we've done research and we have been funded by actually um, the Health Resources and Services Administration to, to do precisely that, to look at the um, education aspect of it. So because we talk about separation, it's separation in different ways, right? So like as, as, as um, Associate Dean Barrow just mentioned, we are looking at separation on, on education. We're looking at separation in the delivery. We're looking at separation on the payment side, we're looking at separation research, the way research is funded. Um, but even within education, as we're talking about, like you said, your, your cardiologist uh, never looked, and that's because they weren't taught how, what, why they should be looking, and that's their job. Um, and, and as it is, healthcare is so fragmented in this country. It's not just medical and dental. Even within medical, it's just so fragmented. So it's not just a function of medical and dental being separate. It's just a fragmented healthcare system. 
but uh, within you know the primary care um, disciplines, um, there is very little oral health being taught, and that's something that um, our research showed that um, across the different primary care professions, such as family medicine, um, pediatric medicine, OBGYN, even um, you know geriatric medicine, um, the the oral health hours hours taught were very very low, and that's something that we are trying to kind of generate evidence around when you're trying to create awareness around, and hopefully mm. some programs to kind of improve that. Mm. Right, and and also if I could just follow up on that for a moment, um, in in addition to those sort of cultural social. Um, barriers that, that Sheenan was just describing. Um, I just want to get, uh, make a point about some of the structural barriers like the information systems um, and, and the insurance systems. Because dentistry tends to be practiced by um, in, in small groups or by individual providers, um, the, the information systems for our dental health records are in general completely separate for, from the electronic medical records that our physicians and hospitals keep about us. So there are um, algorithms that have been developed through our research and research uh, at other academic institutions um, that, in, that use basic medical information gleaned from a medical record that indicate when an individual should be referred to a dentist or to a periodontist um, for treatment, um, but because these systems don't talk to each other, it doesn't. It, it might give a trigger to uh, if the system, the algorithm implemented in the electronic medical system, because it doesn't talk to a dental system, it doesn't help you easily make a referral like it might if you were seeing your cardiologist and you needed to go see an endocrinologist. Hmm. Um, that could all be handled within one system. That is beginning to change. There are beginning to be integrated health records that include both medical and dental information about individual patients that will facilitate um, communication between providers and referrals. Throughout your paper, there is a hint at the need for a champion, an indication that there's a void and a need for an organization to take the lead in rallying there's this really diverse pool of stakeholders. There have been there has been progress and there's been piecemeal progress. I think that's what the paper is talking about really is there are these different areas that someone has kind of taken charge of, right? So now we are there are different organizations working within the, the workforce area, for example, you know, kind of championing mid-level providers. And there are organizations that are kind of working, expanding oral health into, into Medicare. Or there are organizations that there, there's some, you know, movement around integration of medicine and dentistry in, in, in the various areas. But there's not a lot of communication between them, and they're kind of working within their silos to, to further that cause in, in which they're working. And what we're really talking about is there needs to be someone, an entity, that needs to kind of bridge across the three, because those mm -hmm. are the areas that we have defined, and kind of, you know, talk about comprehensive reform. And, and that can really happen um, when there is an organization that, that is as powerful. And, and we, we talk about the ADA in our paper, because that is a, an ADA kind of, and, 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 I, and I want to word this carefully, is, you know, they, they, they have a lot of influence in, in, in the dental, um, obviously among the workforce, but they are also um, involved in accreditation. So they are also kind of, you know, so they, they have, they have a, a role in, in various areas in, in, in dentistry. So um, 
there needs to be buy-in from an organization like ADA before serious reform can happen. You can have piecemeal reform. You can have, you know, oral health is an essential health benefit. Pediatric health is an essential health benefit. You can have that added. You can have, you know, Medicaid expanded in certain um, in, in certain states. But to have like the kind of large-scale, comprehensive reform that we want, you need an organization that is as influential as ADA to be on board. It's now that you need champions. You need, like, you know, a unified voice from the down community saying, "Yes, we are on board," and that's something that we are missing. And that's something that we really talk about the paper is to kind of utilize this window of opportunity that COVID has created, that the election has created, and to really kind of bring everyone on board together. And that's something really that we really stress upon. So the the aftermath of the COVID nineteen pandemic, we saw the ADA use that phrase, referring to dental care as an essential health service. Did that language surprise you? Or was it just a welcomed admission of, of reality? For me, it was the latter. I mean, we, we've, we've had ongoing conversations in oral health circles when we've discussed policy agendas around uh, a Medicare dental benefit, for example. And there has been a group of stakeholders that wants to go forward with medically necessary oral health care. And that means not all oral health care, but um, I think there were some examples in our paper around um, radiation or chemo, for example, when if you have uh, cancer of the jaw, or uh, medical dental clearance to have surgery. Um, it, it's not you know extraction of a tooth or treatment of an abscess, as in the case of Diamante Driver. Those would not be considered medically necessary. Um, so, so there is that camp that, that um, has proposed that we can begin to gain some traction by uh, fighting for coverage for a smaller set of dental services, but that only labels that smaller set as, as medically necessary. Um, from my own perspective, I'm with the camp that says, uh, dental care is an essential service, and if we're fighting for a benefit, we should fight for benefits that enable people access to primary and preventive dental care, emergent care, and, and care that um, enables them to maintain their oral health and benefits their overall health and wellness. Uh, so to me, it was a welcome surprise that they were expanding their scope to include all dental care as essential. Right. What's a dental therapist, and what role do you see that they could play in, in reform? A, a dental therapist is um, a mid-level provider. You know, they provide preventative, restorative, and minor surgical procedures, um, mm -hmm. and that may be under the direct or indirect supervision of dentists. Now, um, I want to say around 11 states, have um, authorized some sort of um, legislation uh, regarding dental therapists in the United States. It, it really is about increasing access. And with, when we talk about supply side issues, uh, we're really looking at a population of people who really don't have access to um, dental care, right? And when we talk about access to dental care, we're not just talking about people not having coverage. So you may have Medicaid you may be covered by Medicaid, you may be eligible um, through Medicaid, but that doesn't mean a Medicaid provider will see you or they will treat you. 
And so there's a large percentage of the population that never even gets to see a dentist, even if they might have Medicaid coverage. So there, there really is a need for a provider to kind of fill that gap. Um, and not only that, I mean, we're not talking about, and, and there's a lot of, this is a very contentious issue in, in, some, in some parts of the country, um, and, and talking about, you know, everyone wants to kind of preserve their piece of the pie and everyone, and no one wants to step on each of the stools. But we're talking about procedures that can be, that, that, that A, you are now providing access to a group of population that never had access to a dentist. B, you are allowing dentists to really practice at, at their kind of, the, at the top of their licensure, as you, as you kind of say, at the top of the license. There's a lot of evidence that shows that having a dental therapist in your practice actually maximizes productivity, it maximizes um, the number of patients seen, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of kind of contention around right now around what a dental, the role of a dental therapist, especially in states that have not authorized it, not so much in states that have authorized it because they see the value in it. But really the, the, the primary role of a dental therapist in this landscape would be to provide to improve access. Right. There's, there's something called a dental health professions shortage area. Um, the Health Research Services Administration takes a look at how many professionals, uh, how many physicians, how many dentists, how many nurses we need in, or in each area by geography to adequately serve the population. And by their count in uh, June of this year, we need another 11,000 pr dental practitioners in the United States to meet wow. the need. Wow. Um, and we have a, um, a bit fewer than 200,000, I think, practicing right now. So that's a pretty significant increase over what we have. And so to Sheenam's point, the dental therapist can help increase access. The states of Minnesota and Alaska have had dental therapists uh, licensed and legal for a few years at this juncture. They're both very large states with rural populations, and they have both found adding the dental therapist to the oral health professions roster has really helped increase access for rural populations in particular. But in looking at some data that was provided by the University of Minnesota and Dr. Carl Self, who has been the director of the program, um, there are a number of dental practices, even in um, suburban and urban areas in Minnesota, that have engaged dental therapists. And um, the, the dentists in those practices have been happy with the addition of the dental therapist because it does, to Sheenam's point, enable them um, to increase the number of patients that they serve while allowing the dentist to focus on the patients with the most complex needs. So mm -hmm. it has been a win for the dentists um, as well as for communities that have been traditionally underserved or not served at all. I just wanted to kind of give an example. It would be akin to a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Really. And, and these, these professionals are not to be confused with dental hygienists. Who, who also are advocating for an increased role. Yes. Um, so, again, it's a, it's, it's a more complicated issue, and it differs by state by state. But dental hygienists, um, as we mentioned in the paper, have different... Their, their scope of um, work or their scope of um, duties differs state by state. So in certain states, they might have a more expansive role. They might um, be allowed to do more procedures and the kind of uh, supervision rules also differ state by state. Um, but there are states um, and there are certain programs, for example, in, in Minnesota, 
um, that, that kind of combine the roles of dental hygienists and dental therapists and they train them together. And um, certain rules in certain states will mandate that you need to be trained as a dental hygienist before you can get the added uh, years to become a dental therapist. So like I said, there is a lot of variation in how, this, how you know, these rules are defined across states. Right, and interestingly, um, the United States is, I won't go so far as to say unique, but one of the few countries that does not have um, a high prevalence of dental therapists uh, serving the population. I don't know how you're going to take this, um, but I learned an, an awful lot from the paper and was glad to see uh, the care in which you attempted to describe a very complex stakeholder environment. And at the end of the paper, I'm left thinking, this is too complicated a problem to solve. I, I'm hoping you don't feel the same way at the end of writing the paper. Is, is there a way forward? I mean, for me, it's about putting the patient at the center. And as you and Sheenam noted at the beginning of the conversation, COVID really put a spotlight on our fragmented healthcare system. And people who have been vulnerable uh, became even more vulnerable during COVID. And we are now beginning to understand where our systems are lacking in ways that we previously had not. And I think there is a, a catalyst for change that has come out of this pandemic. I think there is a lot of interest in understanding how we can transform our system so that we can make sure that all people, regardless of who they are or where they live, have access to essential health care. And dental care is part of that conversation. And I think we can work with our colleagues in other sectors of the health systems as they begin to examine how they can change other components of the system um, to better serve patients. And if we're in that conversation together with the patient at the center trying to understand how we can best protect the patient and improve health, and I will also say um, protect providers going forward if we ever experience anything like this again, there were many practices, medical, dental, surgical, uh, that, that closed for months. And, mm -hmm. and uh, workers in those clinics were on furlough or, or maybe let go. Um, and so those experiences also point to the need to change the way our system is structured. So I think there's a huge groundswell of interest in changing the system, and I'm hopeful that there is interest in collaboration across the medical dental divide so that we can work together to make sure that all people have access to what they need and that our providers are not put at financial risk should anything like this ever happen again. You, you do say it's a complicated problem, and as we call it, a wicked problem. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, but um, healthcare is a wicked problem, right? I mean, just the you know ACA, the kind of work that actually went into having some you know some sort of a comprehensive oral health reform took years and years of you know failed attempts, and then um, uh, there was a there was a lot of conversation happening the last fifty years to you know you know it was health was supposed to be included in in, in the social security plan, it wasn't, and then over the last 60, 65 years you had. 1965, you had you know Medicare and Medicaid, and then it took it took as long as it did, and and that's and that's what we have to 
we have to do. We have to we have to continuously um, strive for uh, for reform and 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 use you know like these windows of opportunity. I, I'm hopeful in a way that we are talking about things. We are talking about it at the level that we are. Like we have um, Senator Schumer tweet about it. We he had he, he mentioned inclusion of dental in, in Medicare. There have been a lot of there's been a lot of media interest in it. And and more important than that, there's been a lot of consumer interest, so to speak, right? You need the demand to come from bottom up. And there have been a lot of uh, people out there um, who 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 really who really notice. They turn sixty five, they notice where where's my dental benefit? Um, I had a dental benefit. I don't have a dental benefit now. Um, and there's a lot of interest on the ground for um, improved dental coverage for oral health reform, and that really is what will take us forward. So I'm actually more hopeful. Right, and Sheenam, to your point about it taking years to affect health policy changes, what gives me hope is how quickly uh, we were able to affect new legislation during a public health emergency. Mm-hmm. You know, telehealth services. For years, there was conversation and debate about what, how to proceed with telehealth services and whether or not to legalize them. If the patient's in one state and the provider is in another, you know, who's, who, what, which state's licensure and scope of practice, which insurance is involved, all of that went out the window with the pandemic. And, and virtually all insurance companies were allowing for telehealth visits, medical and dental. And I'm hopeful that that experience in terms of um, picking up the pace of policy change um, will, in, will, will reverberate and, it, and enable us to make um, policy decisions in a more timely fashion going forward. Jane Barrow, um, talk to me a little bit about the initiative to integrate oral health and medicine. So the initiative was founded in 2015 under the direction of our former dean, uh, Bruce Donoff. It's a public-private partnership. We have um, 11 organizations that uh, contribute to a a research think tank um, here at HSDM, uh, which also includes uh, faculty from other schools around Harvard, Harvard Medical School, Harvard's T.H. Chanoff School of Public Health, We've uh, worked with folks at the, the business school, as well as faculty from UMass Medical School and various other academic and uh, private and policy institutions. And our goal is to build the evidence base to transform the health system, to integrate dentistry and oral care completely and comprehensively into the educational system into the care delivery system and into the financing system and build that evidence um, as Sheena mentioned earlier we've been looking at associations between oral health and um, oral disease and other types of non-communicable diseases and and pregnancy we're also looking at things like sugar tax and tobacco tax um, how changes in eating habits can influence oral care Um, And we're working on those algorithms, as I mentioned earlier, to help uh, physicians determine when to refer patients to a dentist. And conversely, we're also trying to look at the dental visit as an entry point into the health system. And we're running pilots with wellness visits by nurse practitioners in our dental center here at HSDM. We're also developing algorithms to help us understand when we need to refer patients to the physician's office. Um, In addition to the work that we're doing with the wellness visits, we're able to identify 
patients who are pre-diabetic or pre-hypertensive and get them into their primary care office right away. We're also often able to identify HIV AIDS and uh, COVID and HPV early in the oral cavity. And so we're also looking at changes in scope of practice law that would enable dentists to um, provide vaccinations for the flu, for HPV, for COVID, um, and really can, um, participate fully in the, uh, in the health team so that when patients come to the dentist, the dentist can help with providing vaccinations, with taking um, blood pressure, with taking hemoglobin A1C measurements, and providing that information to the rest of the healthcare team. So we're really about blurring that distinction, developing the evidence base, and then working with our colleagues in the advocacy world to try to affect change. Well, good luck. It is a tall uh, order. (laughs) I I would also add uh, behavioral health, Jane. I I don't know if you mentioned that. But um, I think that's something also that that we're really interested in. Help me understand the connection with behavioral health and oral health. Well, well, I think it's all about gaps in care and making sure that people don't fall through the cracks in in the siloed healthcare environment that we live in. And and we, like like Jane just mentioned, um, the dental office can provide an opportunity, much like to screen for for hypertension Mm. and diabetes. It's also a quite fertile environment to screen for um, depression and anxiety, particularly Mm -hmm. among patients who um, adolescents are among certain age groups that actually see a dentist, uh, believe it or not, more often than they see a primary care provider. And that's particularly true for adolescents. So, So really the dental office can serve um, uh, to kind of close those gaps in care. Um, and also, I mean, of course, I mean, if you want to look at, at, at connections, um, there, there is research out there, there is evidence out there to show that people with um, behavioral health um, problems, with depression, anxiety, will be less likely to uh, have more um, health-seeking behaviors. They're less likely to provide, you know, care for their oral cavity and, and other things. So, so there is that connection, but also knowing that um, a, a dental office can be used to um, close gaps in care, which is probably very important. It makes mm-hmm. sense. It just occurs to me that, that your colleagues at the medical school have had a history in the last, I don't know, generation of revamping the medical curriculum. And they've been praised for that, a willingness to sort of throw things out and start over. And I'm wondering, during those, I think there have been two recent efforts at that. During those changes and sort of... Um, rethinking of how medicine should be taught. Did this issue become, sort of come to the fore at all? Yes, Um, I I think the um, most visible sign of that is the fact that the uh, teaching practice here at the Harvard Dental Center is one of the primary care sites um, for the medical school, along with um, primary care at Mass General, Brigham and Women's, um, and a couple of other places. Our Harvard Dental Center is one of the teaching sites for primary Mm. care and the foundations and continuity of care clinic that uh, first year students begin. Our dental students uh, begin with the medical students and spend the first 16 months of their training with the medical students. So as first years, they are all assigned to a primary care clinic and uh, some of the medical students come with some of the dental students um, to the clinic here and learn about um, taking health histories, taking dental histories, and how the mouth is 
uh, connected to the rest of the body. We also have some oral health cases that have been um, distributed into the uh, curriculum. We have an oral health day, uh, especially for the medical students. And then we have uh, added some questions about oral health issues into some of the OSCE exams that the medical and the dental, uh, the medical students take. Jane Barrow and Sheenam Taku, I'm deeply grateful for you uh, helping to explain this complicated landscape and good luck with the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Jane Barrow is Associate Dean for Global and Community Health at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. She's also the Executive Director of the school's initiative to integrate oral health and medicine. Dr. Sheenam Tiku is a dentist. She teaches oral health policy and epidemiology at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. The two are the principal authors of the paper, Oral Health Stakeholders, A Time for Alignment and Action. You'll find a link to the paper on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. In the paper, the authors are critical of the American Dental Association. They write, the ADA has unparalleled control over the licensure and regulation of dental care delivery, and its opposition to reform dampens the pace and enthusiasm to achieve progress. They continue, to achieve change, multiple movements must coalesce around common goals and messages, and a champion must emerge to lead the way. We reached out to the ADA asking for a response to the paper, and they graciously suggested that we talk to Dr. Jane Grover, Director of the Council on Advocacy for Access and Prevention at the ADA. I asked her if the ADA can be the leader the paper's authors call for. Absolutely. In fact, the ADA has always advocated for oral health, particularly in the Medicaid landscape, Prior to coming to the ADA, I was a dental director and a clinician at an FQHC, Federally Qualified Health Center in Jackson, Michigan. And I can tell you that many state legislatures um, view adult dental Medicaid benefits as kind of a hocus pocus, and now you see it, now you don't. They're covered, they're not covered, you know, it's emergency only, patients don't know what their benefits are. The biggest lift uh, can give us the biggest reward is right there where we've already got people in the landscape ready to go. We just need to connect the patients better and locate the providers better. There are more dental schools now than ever before. There are more graduates now. There are more dentists coming out than ever before. In addition, we've got uh, hygienists and dental assistants, and there are even expanded function dental assistants. And I worked with two of them at my health center, and I couldn't have lived without them. Expanded function dental assistants make a dentist 30% more productive. They can help a dentist see more patients. And we admit there are opportunities for expanded function dental assistants that haven't been realized. That's Jane Grover, Director of the Council on Advocacy for Access and Prevention at the American Dental Association. Hi, I'm Mike Drummond, executive producer of the Hear Me Now podcast. 
The team here is asking all our listeners to vote for the Hear Me Now podcast in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. You can find it by setting your browser to podcastawards.com, sign up to nominate, and look for us in the health category. Again, thank you all for your faithful listening. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter for programming updates at human underscore caring. The podcast is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett with help from Will Rogers. We have research help from Heather Martin, Catherine Gibbs, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, and Amanda Schwartz. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to floss and be well. Oh.